G'day, me, 40 here. Remember when the big story in the news was uh, about five months ago, was a raid on Donald Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago, Florida to retrieve classified documents and there are all sorts of you know, horrible, deadly, dangerous classified documents that uh, Trump was, was keeping and, you know, how reckless Trump was. Well, it's so unprecedented to have you know, law enforcement raid the home of a former president of the United States. It seemed like a dramatic escalation in partisanship in law enforcement. And I didn't have any reaction for about 24 hours. And then when it happened, I said, this, this seems to be you know, a partisan federal law enforcement attack on Donald Trump. And as Steve Saylor says, it looks like it was a fight over memorabilia. And uh, here's Mickey Cows talking with Ann Coulter. It just shows how weak the charges were against Trump to begin with. I mean, it's classified documents, as you say, can be your mother's cooking recipe. It, it, uh... Yeah, that's the point. It shows how weak the charges were against Donald Trump to begin with. Classified basically means very little. Everything's overclassified. So Biden has them floating around his office. Uh, you know, Trump has them floating around his office unless they were nuclear secrets or things he was going to sell to a foreign power or use against somebody. It just doesn't seem like a big deal. Uh, there are all these procedures designed to preserve records for historians. It's as, if, it's as if the entire government works for historians, not for the people of the United States. So, yeah, this touches on, on a bigger issue is that you know, we often take what is in the news for what is important. And we often take the decisions of various bureaucracies as that which defines reality. And we often equate you know, our national interests with, say, the interests of this or that government bureaucracy. And we often take you know, a, a federal government bureaucratic report or a local government bureaucratic report as the closest thing that we have to truth. And sometimes that's true, but frequently it isn't. So much of the news is simply you know, battles between different bureaucracies. And, and you're bound to trip up over some of them. And this sort of proves it. You don't think if they went to Obama's office in Chicago, they discovered some documents that he hadn't checked out with the National Archives? Of course they were. Yes, and I would add that you and I have been consistent on this. So Republicans, now that they have control of the House of Representatives, they're making investigation of federal law enforcement agencies a top priority, which makes sense, because it sure does seem like the FBI... The Department of Justice have been mobilized against conservatives. Think about, think about those three three guys in Georgia who have received life sentences for trying to go after that jogger who they suspected of stealing. And then the jogger grabs their gun, and in the struggle, the gun goes off and the jogger gets killed. And federal law enforcement was just all over that case to put those you know, three white southerners away for life. Um, thinking that documents are way overclassified, uh, you can get anyone on it. It's like a lot of the campaign finance rules. If you, Yeah, so a lot of people have the attitude, I'd never do anything illegal. And generally speaking, moderately, that's a good idea. But thanks to the proliferation of laws, we're all breaking you know, dozens of laws every day. And so you can't equate that which is legal with that which is important or with that which is moral, right? Or, you know, that which is righteous. Yeah, generally speaking, obeying the law, a very good idea. 
But there are so many laws, there's so many government bureaucracies now that uh, it's, it's bewildering and, and we can't allow these federal government bureaucracies to define reality for us. And these federal government bureaucracies seem to be overwhelmingly dominated by the left. And so you see with, with Joe Biden administration and with the Barack Obama administration, they're principally interested in removing guns from conservatives from law-abiding Republicans, from law-abiding white people, and they have no interest in taking guns away from uh, inner-city, urban Biden voters. Right? There are sacred groups who you wind back law enforcement for. Right? So from the work perspective, there are sacred groups like blacks, gays, Jews, uh, the transgendered, and uh, you can never criticize them, and you can't hold them to the same standards that you hold everyone else. And that's what it means to be woke. Oh, you're going you're gonna to find something. Um, I agree with that. I also um, sort of think this is the media trying to trick Republicans into going mental over this. How dare he? Classified documents. And at least from what I can tell, it was only five documents, and Biden's own people turned them over. It's not like they were under a subpoena. So it's a very small version of, of what they're going after Trump for. I think they're both small in either event. Uh, yeah, breaking the law does not equate to doing something important or horrible. I mean, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Right? The decision of a jury does not equate with truth. Right? You can persuade a jury, manipulate a jury, uh, find a jury that will go along with just about anything. I mean, you even found a jury said O.J. Simpson was not guilty of murder. But if they get Republicans on the record... Um, and I can name which Fox News host will be on the record. <laughs> a big deal about this tonight. They're going to look really stupid. <laughs> well, uh, I have a different take, which is I think I've expected the Democrats to turn on Biden as soon as the election was over. Yes. So they don't want him to run again. I was and, wondering about that. And, uh, you know, this could, I, I don't think Dick Sauber, the attorney who found them, really would. So have you ever gotten fired or, you know, suffered an unexpected loss being removed from a community or a friendship or a relationship for seemingly trivial reasons, but often people just want to be rid of you, and then they're just looking for a pretext. They, they want to protect themselves against litigation. They, they want to have a plausible-sounding pretext. And so what Mickey Cass is talking about, when people like the Democrats want to be rid of Joe Biden, then here they get a plausible-sounding pretext. So... It is currently 2.17 p.m. here in Maroubra in Sydney, Australia. It's a Wednesday afternoon, listening to Ann Coulter talking with Mickey House. On this conspiracy, but not, you know, there may be people telling Merrick Garland he should really make it make this seem serious, potentially disqualifying and go after both of them, which would... Yeah, they could very well appoint a special prosecutor to go after Joe Biden which might also bring in documents and information found in Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, $10 million for the big fella. Just what the Democrats want. They want both of them got rid of. It's actually what the American people want, too. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, it could fit in with that pattern. Yes, if the media... I, I, I still think the, the smart money is on Joe Biden as the nominee because once you get rid of the octogenarian Democrats. You are down to the Ilhan Omar Democrats. Um, so I think they're going to do the weekend at Bernie's thing with Biden. But if the media turns on Biden, oh my gosh, is he finished? He would be the easiest president Democrat for, for the media to finish off, I can imagine. 
Right. I, I, um, you could. Uh, there, there's, this, there's a certain uh, genre of reporting, which I call the Tom Toms of Doom. Which is <laughs> Johnny Apple of the New York Times was a specialty. You know, important sources say foreign leaders have lost faith in Biden. You know, <laughs> da, 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 you know, and they're like, you know, they, they could do it pretty easily. I think uh, uh, he, he would be hard to convince, but uh, but I think I think he could be convinced to take one for the team. Yeah. So many of the arguments against Biden that were by say Trump supporters in 2020 and were repetitiously, you know, minutely uh, rebutted by the mainstream media in, in Joe Biden's favor. Mainstream media is now going to be trotting out many of those same arguments when they consider it is time to get rid of Joe Biden. So a lot of stories, a lot of information, right? It's value neutral in one context and then a different situation. Aha, you can weaponize it and get rid of someone. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm... So that's what to look for, viewers. Uh, and as long as we're doing this instant response, unless you have something else on Biden and the classified documents, um, I wanted to ask you about their voting on Republicans are voting on the rules changes, all these big compromises that the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy, agreed to. Uh, and um, I think the rules changes, as well as the speaker's vote, is really, really boring to normal people going around New York this weekend. You know, I have Republicans, um, you know, calling me saying, oh, this is so bad for Republicans. They look like they're in such chaos. And then I go talk to normal people. They have no idea what's going on. They do not care. They don't see chaos. Um, and I think the rule. Yeah, that which is of prime importance to you frequently matters not at all to other people. So something that is of prime importance to your neighbor probably matters not at all to you. So to, to media types and political elite types, what's going on with the Republicans and House of Representatives is you know an absolute disaster. Uh, for regular Americans, not so much votes tonight is, is along those lines, um, but also had a few other things to say about that. What do you think about you, the whole thing? The, the only thing I really have to say is um, uh, there, there's all this talk about how, you know, Kevin McCarthy's inheriting a diminished speakership. Well, we don't know what's coming down the road, and, and the, this is the so-called poison chalice argument. He's better off not to have it than to have this weakened speakership, which is almost always wrong. So uh, oh. it, it, it's, a, it, it's good for Kevin McCarthy that he won this job, and who knows what's going to happen. And he... Yeah, there's a left-wing political reporter who's just so relentlessly left-wing, like Mark Barabarak at the Los Angeles Times. And he came out very quickly with a story on uh, Kevin McCarthy is being elected House Speaker and the, the deals he had to make, you know, they're going to cost all Americans. And so that's, that's a very common left-wing trope. They've got, what a disaster this will be for all Americans that... Uh, House of Representatives speaker has had to compromise and participate in a system of democracy. There are just some journalists who are just so relentlessly partisan and left-wing, it's pretty pointless to listen to them. May turn out to be able to wield power more effectively than we thought. The second thing is, these idiot Republicans are going to use these rules to go after entitlements with regard to the debt ceiling. And this is the suicidal urge of the vestigial Paul Ryan philosophy of Republicans, although Chip Roy, who's not a Paul Ryan figure, is, is part of it. But uh, the Republicans are right. Uh, Social Security is heading for bankruptcy slowly. Medicare is heading for bankruptcy more quickly. Let the Democrats clean it up. You know, uh -huh. they're, the, they're the major supporters of the programs. It will have to be cleaned up one way or the other, you know, before they go bankrupt. And uh, or maybe even a little after they go bankrupt. Uh, but, but why do the Republicans have this kamikaze urge to attack social programs? Keep in mind, the Republican base is now working class voters. Many of them depend on Social Security and Medicare. There was uh -huh. a time five, ten years ago before Trump when I thought it was the only thing they had to cling on to. The only framework you had in life was if you just hang, hang on until 65, you're going to get your Social Security even though your steel mill closed and all your jobs left. Mm -hmm. uh, you're stuck in West Virginia. But if you hang on, you can get it. And why would a Trumpian Republican want to kick that out from other people? I don't understand. 
That's a good point. I do have a few more points on the entitlements where I disagree with you, but to get back briefly to the rules changes um, and the McCarthy thing. So put a pin in entitlements because I want to come back to that. Um, You know, the rules changes, I I think everything that happened um, was really magnificent. I think it's made Kevin McCarthy much stronger. He will have a better speakership. Uh, And my reason for that is the rules they were demanding, which Politico and the media keep describing as, it's chaos. What's he going to do now? Um, Politico's big example of of the chaos was... uh, Yeah, I don't think the House of Representatives is so chaotic because they've already passed legislation to investigate the partisan bent of U.S. federal law enforcement agencies. So they're already getting important legislation passed through the House of Representatives. Representative from Alabama, I forget his name. But anyway, on Friday night, he said he was leaving the steering committee. um, And today he changed his mind. Total disarray. <laughs> I'm not seeing it that way, Politico. No, you like to get into these things. But among the rules changes are things that I think it reminds me of Contract with America that New English pushed through, um, or ran on, rather, and a lot of Republicans ran on it. And that is just really blindingly simple and, I think, popular rules, such as we get 72 hours to read a bill. That's one of the rules. Um, they can vote to remove McCarthy, which, from what I understand, a lot of the, um, object- the resistance to him was he'd make a promise to this group, promise to that group. And he- so... What if you made it really hard for Republicans to remove Kevin McCarthy? Right? He'd have less incentive to do his job well. Like If you don't allow divorce under any circumstances, you're saying that your job as a spouse, you cannot be fired from that. At any time you tell people that they cannot be fired from their job, right, they tend to put forward inferior effort trust him. So, okay, having that hang over his head, I mean, then there has to be a vote again, but one person can bring that vote. That's good. It'll keep him telling the truth, keep him honest, um, keep him holding his promises. And the other thing I saw that came out of the the um, you know, Tea Party rebellion or whatever they're calling it is, my one great fear, yours was that, that a Democrat or a Democrat-like Republican would end up as the speaker. Mine was that Dan Crenshaw of Texas would end up chairing the Homeland Security Committee. And that appeared... So Laura Loom has been incredibly active on Twitter. She's been calling Dan Crenshaw an alcoholic. I haven't heard this from other sources, but it wouldn't surprise me given what we know about uh, Dan Crenshaw. It has not happened. They put a really strong guy on immigration, Kevin McCarthy has, but a strong guy on immigration in charge of homelands. Crenshaw's bad because in addition to being a showboarder, he's weak on immigration? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And he's very short. He thinks America is an idea? Oh, yes. Yes. Look, people who think America is an idea don't deny that it's also... Uh, a society that's based in part on kinship that the constitution says we're doing all this for ourselves and for our posterity so just because people articulate one aspect of nationalism be it ideological, religious kinship based civic based constitution based it doesn't mean they're necessarily denying uh, other aspects of nationalism it's just that some aspects of nationalism it is more socially acceptable to highlight Want a wall? You're a Nazi. Right? Now that you mentioned it, uh, last time immigration reform came up, and unfortunately, it looks like it might come up again. Uh, the uh, the motion to vacate was fairly crucial in intimidating Boehner into not bringing it to the floor. So, mm-hmm. if, uh, unless the Freedom Caucus has flipped on immigration, which is entirely possible, they're all everybody is everybody there except for like five people is totally weak if you scratch the surface uh, and potentially uh, a sellout. Uh, but if there's if they stay strong on immigration, they can have the same effect on McCarthy, who always needs bucking up. Uh, and say, look, if you bring this to the floor, sorry, you're, you're toast to speaker. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, that might be a useful thing. Uh, yes. Now that, you, now that you mention it. 
yes, my my one objection to the rebels, uh, and then we'll get this up right away. Um, is that, you know, I'm all for them, and all of a sudden I hear they're they're beholden to Donald Trump. What on earth, you guys? Yes, 2016, he ran on this stuff. If you want to be, you know, Trump-like, push the immigration issue. That would have been popular. Um, again, only, only a few people were paying attention to this. But but you want to show that you're the, the real right-wingers the, and the real populists and the real patriotic Americans. Take Trump's 2016 position on immigration. Right? Are, are the, are the, um, the people who rebelled saying they were beholden to Trump? I know the press is saying that McCarthy is beholden to Trump, and McCarthy thanked Trump effusively. But that's because in his final vote, after the 14th vote, when it looked like they were going to adjourn, Trump called two of them, and they all flipped and quoted president. That's what put McCarthy in the speakership. So it looked like Trump played a key role. Now, maybe that was a setup by Gates to make Trump look like the kingmaker. It's entirely possible. But um, Yes, apparently Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene are still beholden to Donald Trump. And of course... Yeah, so there are a ton of news articles about how Donald Trump doesn't have any political pull anymore, that uh, you know, he's a weak, lost man in a political wilderness. But uh, just because someone doesn't have absolute power... 100% power, you know, 100% success, just because someone suffers setbacks, right, doesn't mean that they don't have some power. Like, we all have some power in some things, and uh, Donald Trump certainly retains some power, some influence, however imperfect it may be. There are, there are two of the six people in the universe who have endorsed Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm beginning to think that uh, Larry Hogan of Maryland might uh, take the lead soon over Donald Trump. Uh, it, it's Trump's... Trump, Trump's <laughs> It's hard. It's hard to believe that his presidential run is as bad as it looks. So it can't possibly be as bad as it looks. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't think they are beholden to Trump. I think that's. I, I, I think. I think that's a media concoction. I hope it's fake news. And if you want to know how Trump's presidential campaign is going, um, you'll probably never hear these words pass my lips again. You have to read Olivia Nunzi in the current New York magazine. Oh, really? I've been it's, resisting doing that. It's hilarious. I, I hate all these these you know show show showy pieces making fun of Trump people and Trump allies and Republicans. It's a staple of the Atlantic and New York Magazine. And she does it well, but you think I have to read it? Okay. Well, Skip, you can get back to me on that. Um... Okay, that's uh, Ann Coulter talking with uh, Mickey Kaus. So reading an interesting article in The New Yorker is about uh, how, how do we think, right? the different ways that we think. And so obviously some people are visual thinkers and other people are more auditory and other people, you know, more verbal. So how should we think about our different styles of thinking? From The New Yorker by Joshua Rothman. Annals of Inquiry, published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline, Thought Process. What really goes on between our ears? So it completely ignores IQ, right? So when you're smarter than average, you live in the future more because you're more likely to see the consequences of things. You're better able to, to plan and uh, you are more capable of empathy, understanding other people's points of view. You're more capable of understanding the repercussions of everything that's going on around you. So the IQ angle is completely ignored, right? Because higher IQ people have access to more empathy, right? They're more likely to seek. Uh... Yes, via Apple News. I like my my Apple News Plus subscription for ten dollars a month. I get plenty of bang for the buck. So if you have a higher IQ, you have access, the ability to have more empathy, and so you're more likely to choose cooperative solutions. And uh, generally speaking, crime doesn't pay in first world nations. 
So you're much less likely to commit crime. Uh, you're much more, more likely to have empathy for other people and so return lost objects and, and the like. And this is completely missed. Also, it's verbal IQ that makes for influence in life and higher incomes. So if you have a higher than average verbal IQ, you have a higher than average chance of having higher than average educational success, uh, professional success, uh, stay out of prison, earn more money than average, and have a higher than average chance for cultural influence. Like all these basic aspects of IQ are ignored. Also, that you know different groups have different uh, levels of IQ. That uh, you know some groups are more verbally gifted, such as Jews. Uh, other groups are more gifted at rotating objects in three-dimensional space, such as East Asians. Like all these juicy group differences in in thinking. All right, don't get discussed. Also, how in in African vocabularies they are so small, like so lacking in exactitude. Uh, you know, so primitive compared to the, the the European and the Romance languages, right? And we think overwhelmingly in words. If you if you don't have words, you don't really have a thought. And. Uh, these basic parts get ignored in this New Yorker article. Written by Joshua Rothman. Narrated by McLeod Andrews. I was 19, maybe 20, when I realized I was empty-headed. I was in a college English class, and we were in a sunny seminar room discussing for whom the bell tolls are possible. And thinking doesn't just occur in our brains. Right? Another weakness in this article is that thinking just occurs in our brain, but our body starts reacting often before our prefrontal cortex reacts. Like we have more primitive parts of our brain, uh, which you know often, often react before the prefrontal cortex, the, the rational analytical part of our brain reacts. So the brain is part of the body and we have a central nervous system all throughout the body. So digestion, all sorts of things going on in the body uh, are operating and shaping our thinking you know, way before the prefrontal cortex gets involved the waves. I raised my hand to say something and suddenly realized that I had no idea what I planned to say. For a moment, I panicked. Then the teacher called on me. I opened my mouth and words emerged. Where had they come from? Yeah, so some people think before they speak, right? the introverted types, and other people think through speaking, uh, people like me. So I'm kind of evenly balanced between introverted and extroverted. Unless I'm feeling happy and confident, then I significantly tend far more in the extroverted direction. So when you're extroverted, right, you think in large part by speaking out loud. Evidently, I'd had a thought. That was why I raised my hand. But I hadn't known what the thought would be until I spoke it. How weird was that? Later, describing the moment to a friend, I recalled how, when I was a kid, my mother had often asked my father, what are you thinking? He'd shrug and say, nothing. A response that irritated her to no end. Yeah, so why, why do men say, I'm not thinking anything? Because they learned they cannot say what they're really thinking and not get punished for it. All right? So if you create an environment where a man can tell you what he's really thinking, he, he will. Right? It's a delight to be able to share what you're thinking with someone else. Right? So 
whether it's a sexual appetite or intimacy appetite or you know verbal appetite all right it, it depends on the context you create do i verbalize audibly my thoughts when i'm alone rarely rarely i don't speak to myself very much but i do do is uh, i journal and i make live streams so one of the ways that i go about thinking is making a live stream and uh, thinking socially but uh, i do far more journaling and uh, just writing things down you know a hundred times more of that than talking aloud how can he be thinking about nothing she'd ask me oh the other thing i realize is i don't see myself i don't know how much the self-talk i might do unless i'm living with someone or i'm in a close intimate relationship when i'm in a close intimate relationship i got all sorts of feedback about how i really operate which is often quite significantly different from how i thought i was operating i've always been on team dad i spend a lot of time thoughtless just living life at the same time whenever i speak ideas condense out of the mental cloud it was happening even then as i talked with my friend i was a- i noticed the power of situation to change my thoughts like my dad told me you'll never take the same thoughts out of a cold shower that you take into a cold shower absolutely true now i think different thoughts when i get out there in the ocean think different thoughts when i'm in sydney compared to los angeles think different thoughts when i'm at a sports bar compared to a synagogue i think different thoughts outside a church and say outside a mosque you know, i think different thoughts when i'm around you know attractive young women and I, i think different thoughts when you know, i've got very mundane tasks that i have to slog through so the context profoundly changes my my thinking articulating thoughts that have been unspecified yet present in my mind my head isn't entirely word free like many people i occasionally talk to myself in an inner monologue remember the milk 10 more reps on the whole though silence reigns blankness too i see hardly any visual images and uh... chat says my mind is hyperactive it's hard for me to get my thoughts down on paper you may have ADHD it's an incredibly powerful explanatory variable i found delving into ADHD on youtube videos just been uh very interesting and very helpful now if you looked objectively at my life you would say that you know, most aspects of my life certainly no longer you know, demonstrate full on ADHD but you may have a degree of ADHD all right it comes in degrees of intensity right you may have the formal diagnosis of ADHD which in America requires the participation of someone close to you who's you know better able to assess the, the power of various ADHD symptoms in your life but uh, just like with bipolar or narcissism right, you can have some tendencies in that direction without having the full bore diagnosis really picturing things people or places thinking happens as a kind of pressure behind my eyes well ocd or adhd at this point what difference does it really make well the, the difference it uh, 
it makes is that there may be a solution and that the solution between you know ADHD and OCD you know may be different so I'm not a, I'm not a psychiatrist but uh, getting help in something that's ailing you uh, is, is life-changing now another significant difference I notice in my thoughts is time of day so when I get up within oh there's a drone within a few minutes of getting up my thoughts are are hyper alert and sharp and positive and excited and then they start to dim in optimism, excitement, positivity, uh, intensity as I as I go through the day. So usually, you know, mid morning there's something of a slump, and then I got to admit I'm fighting a slump right now. I just had so much strength and energy yesterday. I was just like out there swimming in the ocean. I just felt unlimited strength and energy like diving under the water uh, sprinting through the water snorkeling hiking I just felt I had unlimited reserves of energy yesterday and then today and this afternoon I am just flagging so the degree of energy I have going on has a profound effect on my thinking I need to talk out loud in order to complete most of my thoughts. My wife, consequently, is the other half of my brain. If no interlocutor is available, I write. When that fails, I pace my empty house muttering. I sometimes go for a swim just to talk to myself far from shore, where no one can hear me. My minimalist mental theater has shaped my life. Say I need red meat. Bro, I took six beef organ capsules this morning. I had six beef organ capsules, had a big fat juicy mango for both breakfast and lunch, and then some uh, like some protein granola for breakfast, a nice big old salad with avocado for, for lunch. I'm an inveterate talker, a professional writer and a lifelong photographer, a heady person who's determined to get things out of my head to a place where I can apprehend them. I'm scarcely alone in having a mental style or believing I do. Ask someone how she thinks and you might... So one thing I find that gets me out of these slumps like I feel right now, just completely drained of energy, is interacting with people. Even if it's just like over the phone or running into someone, you know, face-to-face, in-person conversation just often uh, transports me out of, you know, kind of a ho-hum, blah day learn that she talks to herself silently or cogitates visually or moves through mental space by traversing physical space i have a friend who thinks during yoga and another who browses and compares mental photographs i know a scientist who plays interior tetris have i seen how full the la river is no but i hear it's like uh the spring of 1998 i remember like january february march of 1998 in la just uh, constant downpour so you know I'm hoping that you know the rain doesn't come through my place and stain and damage while I'm I'm out of the country so yeah I've been checking in on news reports and and videos of uh, what's going on in California so overall it's fantastic man you can't tell me that we're still in drought 
rearranging proteins in his dreams. My wife often wears a familiar faraway look. When I see it, I know that she's rehearsing a complex... So I notice particularly smart people, they can just kind of tell what I'm thinking just by looking at my face, because you can't think a thought without it rippling across your face. Uh, you can't think a word without you kind of silently sound it out in a very subtle, understated way. But uh, all your thoughts ripple across your face, and so the really smart, intuitive people, particularly women, can often immediately sense what it is that you're thinking. It's kind of scary. It's drama in her head, running all the lines. She sometimes pronounces an entire sentence silently before speaking it out loud. In the recent book, Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns, and Abstractions, Temple Grandin explains that her mind is filled with detailed images, which she can juxtapose, combine, and revise with verve and precision. Grandin, an animal behaviorist and an agricultural engineer at Colorado State University, has worked designing elements of slaughterhouses and other farm structures. When tasked with estimating the cost of a new building, she looks at her plans, then compares them in her mind with remembered images of past projects. Just by thinking visually, she can accurately estimate that the new building will be twice or three quarters the cost of one that's come before. After the pandemic began, she read a lot about how medications can help our bodies fight COVID-19. As she read, she developed a detailed visual analogy in which the body was a military base under siege. When she thought about cytokine storms, events in which the immune system becomes overactivated, causing out-of-control inflammation, she didn't conceptualize the idea. Right, this sounds a little bit about what's your love style. Right, the, the, the gifts that have been most meaningful to me have been words, right, either orally or written down. Uh, you know, other people I know, they, you know their, their love style is you know, gifts, you know, some physical demonstration. For other people, it's touch. So I'm very much a words guy. Uh, notes. You know, sweet nothings whispered to me. I remember I would try to communicate with my, my girlfriend you know, with, with the style that, that was favorite to me, such as like writing notes and saying things and what usually happened is that for my girlfriends, they primarily wanted like gifts. Gifts is what meant the most, not my deep and meaningful notes. In words. Instead, she writes, I see the soldiers in my immune system going berserk. They become confused and start attacking the base and lighting it on fire. Reading Grandin's book, I often found myself wishing that I were more visual. My mental snapshots of growing up are flimsy. I'm never quite sure whether I'm recalling or imagining them. But Grandin easily accesses clear pictorial memories of her childhood, complete with three-dimensional pictures and videos. She vividly recalls coasting down snow-covered hills on toboggans or flying saucers, and can even feel the lift and dip of the sled as it bumps down the slope. She effortlessly pictures the delicate three-stranded silk she held between her fingers in embroidery class in elementary school. If her mind is an IMAX theater, mine is a fax machine. In the early 20th century, novels like Ulysses, Mrs. Dalloway, and In Search of Lost Time asked us to look inside ourselves at our own minds. 
Grandin's book similarly directs our attention to what William James called the stream of consciousness. So as I was walking here, I walked past a wedding. So as society becomes more secular, it puts more and more emphasis on weddings, right? Because as society becomes more secular, and as religion becomes more removed, as there are more and more naturalistic explanations for what's going on in the world, like people live in a less and less enchanted world, so they have to put more effort in to occasions like weddings or, or bar mitzvahs or even funerals or they have to you know, desperately try to add some some meaning and some enchantment back into a world that is increasingly drained of both. So I saw, saw a wedding just about to begin here overlooking the ocean. The oceans are Australia's cathedrals. So what a great place to have a wedding. And so people, I think, as a percentage of their income, they're just steadily spending more and more money on weddings in you know, somewhat uh, desperate attempt to add you know, magic and meaning to their lives given, given ever-encroaching secularism. The ongoing flow of thoughts in our heads. Our mental life, like a bird's life, seems to be made of an alternation of flights and perchings, James wrote. His aquatic and avian metaphors have a decorous quality. They decline to overspecify what's going on in our minds. Grandin's writing does the opposite, describing with striking concreteness what's happening in her head and possibly yours. Her precise descriptions accentuate differences between minds. In a 1974 essay titled, What is it like to be a bat? The philosopher Thomas Nagel argued that we'd never know because bat sonar differs so profoundly from human vision as to make it unimaginable. Grandin and I... So one of the ways that people on the left deny science is they, they want to deny that uh, the different places, the different uh, peoples of the earth have evolved had any effect, any effect whatsoever on the brain, right? And obviously it has, right? In the tropics, all right, where food is plentiful and abundant year-round, right? Excessive, you know, cognitive work may well be maladaptive because it burns up so many calories and there's not really any need for doing an excessive amount of cognitive work just to, just to find food. While if you're going to survive, you know, harsh winters, yeah, you'll have to do a lot of planning and preparation and exercise discipline and cooperation with other people. So obviously, a people developing in, in the tropics is going to develop a brain that is different from people developing in Northern Europe or Northeast Asia. And uh, another fascinating topic that this New Yorker article surprisingly completely ignores So, yes, the conventional wisdom by liberals and people on the left that uh, the brain, the human brain, hasn't changed in the last 10,000 years. And that evolution hasn't shaped the brain differently for different people evolving in different parts of the world, which is, of course, nonsense. And uh, there's a great book, The 10,000-Year Explosion, by Gregory Cochran and Henry Harpending, that the, the dramatic and varied changes in the brain just through evolution over the past 10,000 years. Have I watched Naked and Afraid, bro? The jungle is full of parasites. No, I have not watched uh, Naked and Afraid. Aren't that 
I struggle to imagine having a mind as extraordinarily visual as hers. At the same time, Grandin and I have many of the same ideas. We both understand cost overruns and cytokine storms. We arrive by divergent routes at the same destinations. How different do our minds really make us? And what should we make of our differences? Grandin, who is on the autism spectrum, came to prominence in 1995 when she published Thinking in Pictures, a memoir that chronicled her years-long search for a way to put her visual and perceptual gifts to use. She found a home in agricultural engineering, where she was capable of visualizing farm buildings from the... Okay, so she has non-neurotypical gifts. And let me guess. I'm going to guess that she's going to write a book that's an impassioned plea that people like her should be considered more attractive and should be accorded you know, more understanding and more status and more power and more influence and more of the good things of life. Okay, this, this seems to be a perennial theme among many female writers and many minority writers. The animal's perspective. Visiting a slaughterhouse where animals were often panicked, she could instantly see how small visual elements, such as a hanging chain or a reflection in a puddle, were distracting them and causing confusion. Thinking in pictures made the case for the value of neurodiversity. Grandin's unusual mind succeeded where others couldn't. In Okay, so they want to talk about the value of neurodiversity. You think they dare to talk about the disruptive effect of neurodiversity? You think they dare to talk about the negative aspects of neurodiversity? You think they'd want to go into any depth about uh, why many people shy away from the neurodiverse? No, they only want to talk about, hey, let's celebrate neurodiversity, guys. visual thinking, she sharpens her argument, proposing that word-centric people have sidelined other kinds of thinkers. Verbal minds, she argues, run our boardrooms, newsrooms, legislatures, and schools, which have cut back on shop class and the arts while subjecting students to a daunting array of written standardized tests. The result is a crisis in American ingenuity. Imagine a world with no artists, industrial designers, or inventors, Grandin writes. Yeah, exactly. So she wants she wants to completely remake reality so that people like her have more status and power and are more valued and are considered more attractive. So she doesn't, you know, delve into nor does the article why is it that uh, you know higher verbal IQ scores you know, produce more income, more you know, general educational success, more status, more cultural influence than people with the ability to. Rota rotate objects in three dimensions. All right, so that uh, realistic part of why it is that high verbal IQ makes for for money, power, and influence. Right, they don't want to go into that. There's just this cry from the heart about the nature of reality. No electricians, mechanics, architects, plumbers, or builders. Uh, yeah, just because verb like you creates you know, more more money and power and influence on average than uh, spatial IQ doesn't mean that we're not going to have <laughs> people with 
you know, high spatial intelligence, right? We're never going to have a society without engineers, right? We're never going to have a society that doesn't need people who are high in spatial intelligence. Back to the New York This is our, our visual thinkers, many hiding in plain sight. And we have failed to understand, encourage, or appreciate their specific contributions. I think people tend to be appreciated, you know, in alignment with how much they contribute, right? If you contribute a lot, think about the enormous power and explanatory value and predictive power of these live streams, all right? As we change lives here, right? And so when you do that, you get appreciation, right? If you have important skills, you do things for others, you reshape society, you solve problems for people, then you're going to get appreciation. If you don't do those things, you're only going to get affirmative action style appreciation, but that's what she wants. She wants affirmative action appreciation. In Thinking in Pictures, Grandin suggested that the world was divided between visual and verbal thinkers. Visual thinking gently revises the idea. Identify. Yeah, like we, we never thought that there was any difference between verbal and spatial IQ before, and until uh, this non neurotypical woman started uh, writing and, and instructing us about how reality should be. Okay, I got some, got some energy back. The sun's come out. I'm going to continue on my journey south. Bye bye.